Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surratt, and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership and the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the National Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Dr. Tim Elmore. Tim is the founder of Growing Leaders, a global nonprofit that encourages and equips young adults to take on real-life opportunities and challenges in the classroom and their careers and in the community. Tim is the author of more than 30 books and is the host of the Growing Leaders Podcast. Dr. Elmore completed his undergraduate work at Oral Roberts University and his graduate degrees at Azusa Pacific University. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Miles. Good to be with you. Yeah, yeah, thrilled to have you. So we'll get started with a regular segment that we have called Rapid Fire. So I'm going to ask a couple of big, silly questions and limit you to a 30-second <laughs> response. Does that sound okay? That sounds okay. Okay, great. And I'm not, I don't have the stopwatch out, so if we run a little late, that'll be okay. Okay, all right. So I understand, I understand you really love popcorn. Uh, so what's your ideal setting to, to enjoy popcorn? Do you like it at home? Do you like movie popcorn? Do you have a, a particular technique that you use? Miles, you're going deep early, aren't you? Um, <laughs> I love it anytime, anywhere. Uh, love movie popcorn. In fact, I'm such a connoisseur, I can tell you that right now, AMC movie popcorn is actually better than Regal uh, cinema popcorn. Uh, there's, there's just a little <laughs> different butter and uh, okay. like it, love it better. Love to eat it at home. In fact, my wife on my 40th birthday got me a popcorn machine, much like the movie cinema. It's that large thing. So um, I don't know how good it is for me. I may die early. I don't know, but, but I'm going <laughs> to die with a smile on my face. So um, we've got a multi-flavor popcorn store near our home in North Atlanta, and I love almost all of them. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just a little uh, love I have in my life. Wow. I have never heard anyone have an opinion on uh, the different movie theater popcorn varieties. <laughs> yes. That is... in the words of in the words of Dr. Seuss, I would eat them in a boat. I would eat them with a goat. Uh, so yeah, it's any anytime anywhere. Well, I have a special place in my heart for I think that that type of machine that you have at home because uh, in my very first job in student affairs, I had to I, uh, a part of my role there was uh, making a lot of popcorn for student events. So I there you uh, go. navigated those machines before. Um, <laughs> there you go. That's awesome. Okay. So you have lived in Atlanta for over 20 years and have adopted the local sports teams, but you also support your hometown Cincinnati teams. So if those teams played, for instance, say the Reds and the Raves, uh, the Braves yes. and the Reds, where's your rooting interest? Oh my gosh, that's hard. It would be very difficult for me uh, because I'm a very loyal person, and I did grow up in Cincinnati. <laughs> during the big red machine days with Pete Rose uh -huh. and Johnny Bench and Tony Perez. But probably, I'm just thinking, probably I would root for the Braves only because of relationships. We, we, um, you, you may or may not know, we work with a number of um, NCAA programs and then also pro teams. And mm -hmm. so we have worked with the Braves doing leader training for their managers and coaches, understanding this emerging generation. And, you know, when you just get to know people, you, you just start – rooting for them. You know, you start siding with them. So mm -hmm. the different teams that we have uh, begun to work with, I now follow them pretty avidly just because I feel like I've got some stake in the game. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, I refer to that as sympathetic fandom. I, I feel that <laughs> yeah, way. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't and have if you a don't really play strong. Well, you go, well, I know his mother's not well. Yeah, that's so, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's totally true. I have a, one of my best friends is a huge Jacksonville Jaguars fan and I don't have a strong NFL allegiance. And I found yeah. myself rooting for the Jaguars over time just because I want him to be happy. So you, That you borrowed his, his love. That's true. Well, yeah. we've been uh, recently following the Houston Rockets because we just began a, 
uh, deal with them. And, and uh, it's been so fun to see James Harden play well. And I wouldn't have really cared much last year this time, but I do now because, you know, we, we know he's going through our habitudes and, and learning to be a leader. So that's, it's just, it is kind of fun to, when, you, uh, when you borrow teams that are not geographically close, but they get close to your heart. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, maybe, maybe it's the growing leader secret that uh, is the <laughs> secret to the Rocket success. Who knows? Who knows? Everybody says it's the right. new coach. Maybe it's growing leaders. That, so. Who knows? That's right. Just it saying. I'm not saying. Be. <laughs> okay, right. so, I, so I know you're really family-oriented. So what's your favorite thing to do with your family? Oh, gosh, love doing everything. Both of my kids are in their 20s. So Bethany is 28 right now, and Jonathan's 24. So they're both done with college, although Bethany's getting her graduate degree now. But whenever we get time with them, we love to just veg. We love to go to movies. Uh, mm-hmm. But we also love any experience together. Um, we're going to do a really fun vacation in May to London and Paris just for mm-hmm. fun. And um, it's to celebrate Jonathan's recent um, graduation and then Bethany's graduation from grad school. So um, whenever we have an experience together, it has been so fun for me to, over the years, start learning from them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, now they're adults and, and Bethany's sharing what she's learning in class. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. I would love that class. And so um, we, almost everything we did, uh, Miles, over the years, we would have an experience together and then we would debrief it. You know, what what, did you think about that vacation? What do you think about the worldview of that guy that was our tour guide? And and, uh, I I probably did that too much, but everything was a learning moment. And so we love having experiences together and then debriefing what do we learn from that that experience. So, um, yeah, I would say that's probably my favorite thing to do with my family. Yeah, that's great. That's a really unique perspective. Um, so uh, to to put you even further on the on the hot seat here, we're going to switch to higher ed, two truths and a lie. So what I'm going to do here is provide <laughs> two true stories from higher education current events and one lie, and you'll have to okay. parse out the lie. Um, oh, so my gosh. This, okay. The theme this week is emerging communication. So uh, are you ready for your three options? Well, you tell me what they are, and I'll tell you if I'm ready. <laughs> Okay. All right. All right. So your first option is last Friday, A.D. Carson, a doctoral student at Clemson, defended his dissertation in rhetorics, communication, and information design uh, in in that program. And the now Dr. Carson, because he successfully defended it, took a unique approach to the dissertation process and created a 34-song rap album in lieu of the traditional formal written product. So that's your first option, Dr. Carson and uh, his, and his uh, rhetorical rap album. And then your next option is our author and journalist Malcolm Gladwell recently responded with vigor to a seemingly innocuous tweet from Stanford's Office of Development. The Stanford tweet asked for donations to the school as a show of love in preparation for Valentine's Day. Gladwell, who finds the size of Stanford's endowment to be obscenely gratuitous, countered by comparing the school to the Sultan of Brunei and questioning the integrity of the admissions process at Stanford. So that's your second option is Malcolm Gladwell and his Stanford feud. And then your third option is that Dr. Aaron Beck, an assistant professor at the University of Oregon, recently tested a unique form of instruction. While an extended unplanned research opportunity in El Salvador, she FaceTimed into her senior thesis course on Oscar Romero's unique form of resistance. So that is your third option, University of Oregon and FaceTime instruction. Wow. Well, I, I think that my guess will be um, 
I think my guess is going to be number three. I, I think number one is true. I, remember, I think I remember reading something about that. I could be wrong. But uh, I'm going to go with the lie is number three. Well, Tim, I would say that you are in about the uh, 33rd uh, percent of folks who uh, get this correct because you got it right. That is uh, okay, that is false. I can't confirm. <laughs> so Dr. Erin Beck is a real person. She does teach at the University of Oregon, and she is interested in, uh, in Latin American uh, politics, I believe. Uh, but okay. as far as I know, she has not FaceTimed into her senior thesis to talk about it. <laughs> yes, there you go. Yeah. One day that will probably happen, but yeah. It, it absolutely could, yeah, but it did not happen this time as far as I know. If anyone from yeah. the University of Oregon is aware of Dr. Beck uh, FaceTiming uh, her instruction, please let me know. So, um, there you go. Okay, so uh, the next segment is called Getting to Know Tim, so it's designed to help uh, our listeners understand you as a person, as a professional. So uh, the first question is, what led you into leadership work? Wow. Well, I think the short answer, Miles, is that I began teaching high school students in 1979 uh, and then later moved into teaching college students in the 1980s. I was still very young. But in 1983, four years after I began to teach, um, I went on staff with Dr. John Maxwell. Um, and John, of course, is a leadership guru, a, a New York Times bestselling author in leadership, has written bunches of books. But my love of students began to um, align with my love of leadership. I began to see how crucial learning to lead effectively, um, how that just raises your level of everything you do. If you're a nurse, you're a better nurse. If you're a businessman, you're a better businessman. So I began to see this narrowing of my niche in my career to not just teach students, which I think is very important, but to equip them to think and act like, like healthy, effective leaders. And quite frankly, this may sound cliche, but I just feel like our world needs more and better leaders. Um, certainly we need to follow well, and, and I don't know that some of us do that very well, but, but I just feel like, um, you know, we hear about scandals and, and just things that, oh, my gosh, why did that happen? And, well, it happened because their gift threw them into a, a very influential role, but perhaps they weren't ready ethically, um, perhaps, for that role. So I just thought I, I want to um, – reach emerging leaders on the front end before they've made, you know, any big mistakes or, you know, ruined a marriage or whatever, and really begin to help them lay down tracks that will make them more effective. So um, I think it was an evolution over between 1983 and really 2003 when I founded Growing Leaders. Okay. Uh, so uh, I, as I mentioned in the introduction, you have authored more than 30 books. So I'm going to ask you to exclude your work from this question. So what, <laughs> okay. is, what is the best book about leadership in the non-Tim Elmore authored section? Okay. Wow. Well, um, two or three come to mind right away. Um, leadership and Self-Deception is a book that I've absolutely fallen in love with over the last decade. Um, it's written by the Arbinger Institute. It's a group of psychologists. And it's, and it's told in parable form, you know, so it's a story, it's a narrative. But this book is so brilliantly written to reveal how self-absorbed we can be as people, even when we become leaders, and how our self-awareness can be so low. So I have all new, new interns that come on staff at Growing Leaders, I have them go through that mm -hmm. book. And it usually is um, life-changing um, because we begin to see how in the box rather than out of the box we think. We're, we're just um, seeing our angle and our side of the argument or, or you don't know how hard it was for me today. 
so anyway, that would be book number one, Leadership and Self-Deception. Love it, love it, love it. Um, I also like Good to Great by Jim Collins. I know that's a book that's been talked about lots and lots in higher ed. But um, I love the fact that he's very research-based, but it's such a practical book. And he gives um, great takeaways and good handles on how to think about you know, leaders, leadership, hedgehog principle, and others. So good to great, Jim Collins. And then the last one is a lesser-known book, Miles, but I really like it. It's a book called Certain Trumpets uh, mm. by Gary Wills. Um, it's a pretty thick book, but um, Gary Wills outlines – um, 16 different kinds of leaders and different approaches to leadership, um, the rhetorical leader, the constitutional leader, the charismatic leader, and how certain leaders down through history have chosen to get the job done that they, were, that they felt assigned to do, but how they went about it differently based on their gifting. So, you know, um, George Washington was a perfect constitutional leader. He fit into the, into the framework of our constitution, when we've had presidents that have not been that kind of a person, they may, uh, you know, run outside the boundaries, you know, and, and they get called on the carpet because they, they don't want to fit within the Constitution of the United States. Um, Dr. King, uh, back in the 1960s, was what Gary Wills called a rhetorical leader. He used his words, um, and he was able to inspire. I know that, again, that sounds very pithy, but his, his words are what led the way. He certainly he marched, and he was put in prison one time on purpose. But um, Dr. King led with his words. So that book is just a great treatment on types and anti-types of leaders and how they choose to get things done based on who they are. So, mm. yeah, I'll stop there. Mm. Okay, great. So uh, yeah. I, you mentioned earlier that you, that you started your work with Growing Leaders in 2003. So how did you decide to, how did you decide to start that initiative? Well, um, I was working with John Maxwell. I worked with John for about 20 years. And in my work with Dr. Maxwell, I had been doing work in the academic world. And in 2001, do you remember after September 11th, 2001, Mm -hmm. lots of things changed. And nonprofit work began to change. In fact, profit levels went down in some companies. And the company I was working with, with Dr. Maxwell, chose to no longer work in the academic space. And I got upset about that. Uh, I'm just being candid here. I, I sat down with John twice and said, this is changing our mission. We can't do this. We've got to keep working here. And John said, Tim, we've got to narrow our, our focus. And, and um, at, it was at that point I felt like the fire began to burn inside of me, and I began to see how much that student work was just running through my veins. Uh, and I, um, so it kind of percolated or marinated for a couple of years but about a year into, about 2002, I began to think, I've got to do something here. And John blessed it. I mean, he said, this is great. You should do this. So I continued to write for John, but um, started growing leaders in 2003. And Miles, my goal was really to provide the, what I believe were timeless universal leadership principles, but, uh, but really um, to use a pedagogy that was, um, that was appropriate for, for millennials. Um, you know, they weren't wanting another law of leadership. When John wrote the 21 Laws of Leadership, they weren't looking for another law, but they were looking perhaps for images to talk about and conversations to have and experiences to, um, to have. So uh, Habitudes is our number one resource, and it really teaches principles through the power of a picture. Um, every, every image represents a timeless principle, but it's, because pictures are worth a thousand words, it starts a conversation, and we have found in 
res life or student affairs or student government or, or even in classrooms, it's, it sparked good conversations that it begins to engage students. So that was kind of my, my goal when I started Growing Leaders. Hmm. Okay. So I know that you were in a plane crash in the 1990s that impacted your life and, and work. Could you expound on that experience a bit? <laughs> yes. We really are bebopping around, aren't we, Moss? <laughs> yes, I was in a plane crash. Um, that, was a, that was a real crucible for me. Um, I was in New Zealand, and um, I was speaking at some student events, and we were, um, the four of us on this team, we uh, got off our commercial airliner and climbed on a private plane, a small private plane, and we're flying uh, to land on a field where we were going to have a meeting. It was just kind of an odd situation, but we crash-landed. Um, he um, tried to land the plane, didn't realize there was, or he realized there wasn't enough room to stop the plane before the trees began. There was a wooded area just on the other side of the field we were landing on, and he tried to take the plane back up, and when he got oh gosh, about 120 feet in the air, um, the engine stalled and we just spiraled and dropped to the ground. So mm-hmm. 120 feet, you know, that's, that's like 12 stories up. Mm-hmm. We um, probably should have all been dead, but, um, but we all lived through it. We were all hurt and beaten up. But um, in fact, Grant, the pilot, went right through the windshield. It was, it was pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. But we lived through it. And my takeaway, I feel like as I look back now years later, um, I felt like that gave me a sense of urgency about the work that I do. Um, and I'm not trying to spiritualize this, but just, you know, I felt uh, I, I was very aware of my mortality and how life can be, you know, snuffed out. And, and uh, I really, dis- I, I think after that experience, I just became way more focused and intentional about my work and I didn't want to waste time. And, and um, so, yeah, that was a, you know how you just have crucibles that happen to you, you don't plan them. And then mm-hmm. it, just, it just kind of shapes you along the way. And I feel like that was a, a real shaper of my, my career. Mm. Yeah, I, was mad. I, I would imagine so. I'm just uh, sweaty listening to that story. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's transition. Let's, let's get out of our, our bebopping a little bit and transition into uh, maybe a little bit more linear conversation. So this last segment is called Six Big Leadership Questions. So, my first question okay. for you, Tim, is I know you've been thinking a lot about the concept of metacognition recently. So can you yeah. uh, provide a summary of that practice to our listeners? Absolutely. Um, well, I have been helped by just reading after Harvard University's work. But metacognition, probably most listeners have heard the term. Maybe, you, maybe they totally get the term. But it's, it's, um, it's something I think I learned and didn't know what to call it years ago when I was mentoring a group of university students uh, on the side, it was not in the classroom. It was co-curricular. But um, I remember getting an email from one of the university students saying, hey, who's going to pick the topic and, and do the discussion this, this next week? And I grabbed my laptop and I typed in, I can do that. But um, that's only what I thought I typed in to that student. Uh, in my laptop, and probably in yours too, the letter I is right next to the letter U. And I accidentally typed, you can do that. And so when I showed up at the, at the meeting uh, that next week, uh, I opened my mouth to draw a breath and start in, and those students had taken uh, you know, the, the preparation, and they'd taken over the meeting. And I, I suddenly realized they are fully ready to lead the discussion, to show the movie clip, to you know, uh, do the exercise together. And 
I never told them it was a mistake that I had done that. But um, that is a picture of metacognition. When you get the students thinking about their thinking and you get them reflecting on what did, what did I need to learn to, to, uh, to, to communicate this well? And am I able to communicate what I know well? That's part of the process. So it's student engagement on steroids in many ways. But um, Miles, if you stop and think about it, certainly in K-12, but I also think in higher ed, most of the metacognition that happens in a classroom happens on the part of the teacher, not the student. You know, the teacher comes in ready. The teacher comes in prepared. The teacher gets ready to talk. And I'm thinking, we need to turn this around. We need to be facilitators or consultants, but they need to be the creators. And um, I certainly know I'm not the first person to say this, but metacognition is, I think, revolutionary when, whether we're in student affairs or we're a faculty, and we really push the work of education onto the student. And I think we don't do that better because it's very messy. Um, you know, it just, who knows what direction it's going to go. But uh, I really think the best teachers really do put the, the metacognition on their students. Let me give you one more analogy. I'm, I just, this just came to my mind. When we teach the way we've traditionally taught, where we have a, you know, a, some points we need to get across, a lecture to give, it's almost like going to a, a gym or a fitness center, and we hear our trainers say, well, now I really want you to understand fitness, so stand back as I will lift all the weights for you. Um, you know, that's just not going to do it for us. We, we have to lift the weights. But I feel like we've been lifting the weights far too long for the students, and we need to really say, I'm going I'm to be okay with being messy, but I'm really going to let them and push them to learn by figuring this out with only guidance on my part. I become a guide, not a god. So I'll stop there, but that's just, it's just huge. And we're really now just trying to harness it ourselves as we work with universities across the country. How can we better put the learning and the ownership into the, into the students' hands. Mm. Yeah, it feels in some ways like, a, like a, a sort of radical, intentional extension of John Dewey's work. You know, it's, it's very much, yes. it's very much yeah. a, an idea of being, you know, systematic about how things are flipping. Uh, so, you know, just to sort of extend that, how do you think we can apply metacognition to curricular settings? Well, I think in curricular settings, um, we, we need to start with, with obviously with questions, um, but I think the first question we need to, um, to do, if we go in as, a, as an instructor and we know the learning that we want to see happen in the minds of our students, we know the, the outcomes we're trying to reach, we can lead with why first rather than what. In other words, start building incentive in the learners. Uh, they probably came into the classroom not thinking necessarily about the subject. They're thinking about something totally different, like the party next Friday night or the football game on Saturday. And so I think we need to take the first several minutes and go through the why. So we start asking questions about pain points in their lives. Uh, we show how this topic is going to be relevant. And then we start turning them loose to, um, to experiment. Uh, and maybe it's discussion at first. I know many people do this, but... Uh, maybe they're talking about issues or, or, or um, relevant topics in their life. But um, I think that's the, the teachers that I know that do this well uh, start with why, and then they move into questions that get students begin to, search, to research and search. Um, and um, I think, I think um, the hardest thing for those of us that love to teach, we love to instruct, is that it means less talking on our part and more Mm. talking and doing on their part. And that's just, and that's counterintuitive. 
I want to, I love to, can you tell I like to talk? I, I want to speak, and, and I, I think that's just hard for me to say. I need to let them do it. So I'll stop there. Mm. Okay, so um, to sort of flip that around a little bit, how do you think we, how do you think we can apply metacognition in co-curricular settings? Yeah, great. Well, I realize there must be people listening that are in that situation. I feel like if I can, if I can communicate a couple of um, columns in your mind, two, two columns, uh, traditional pedagogy and then transformational pedagogy, I think in the traditional format in student affairs or, or the co-curricular setting, the students are consumers, uh, so they come in. And by the way, that probably is true in class too. They're, they're coming in as consumers. I paid tuition for this. I think in the transformational pedagogy, which is metacognition, the students are creators. So maybe we, we give more license, a little more freedom for the students to really create. Now, we need to make sure they're not stepping completely out of bounds doing something unlawful or, you know, ridiculously that, that could even damage, and they just didn't realize it at 19 years old. But I think we need to let students really become creators. I think in the traditional pedagogy, uh, the teachers are commanders or the, the staff people are commanders. I think in the metacognition model, the transformation model, teachers are consultants. So we really do let them do a lot of the work. And then lastly, in the traditional pedagogy, I think it fosters complacency very often, not all the time, on the part of students because they're looking to us to just tell them what to do or give them the answers or give them the parameters. And I think in the transformational pedagogy, it fosters contribution. The students realize nothing's going to happen unless I, I do this. Uh, now, if you don't mind, let me say one more thing, Miles. I, when we think about leader development at Growing Leaders, it seems to me like uh, that on every college campus, there are two kinds of leaders. And I believe every single student fits into one of these two kinds. Mm. I believe they are either habitual leaders or situational leaders. Habitual leaders are the ones that lead out of habit. Okay? They're the gifted ones. They're the ones that are easy to spot. They're going to be student body president their senior year or an RA their sophomore year, you know, that sort of thing. But I think that's probably 10 to 15% of the, of the student body population. The other 85 to 90% of us are what I would call situational leaders. And we're the ones that would say, I'm not really a great leader, but put me in the right situation, one that matches my, my gifts, my passions, my strengths. In that one sweet spot, I know what to do. I've got, you know, I've got intuition on that, and I've never taken a class. I have confidence in that area. I've got influence in that area. So I think part of our job as we work in co-curricular settings is to help students find their situation. Where is that area that they just are so good at? Everything changes when they're in that area. You know, their, their sense of identity, their self-esteem is better. Their confidence is better. Their, their engagement in class is better because they feel better about themselves. And again, I don't mean to oversimplify this, but I really believe our job as educators, co-curricular or in the classroom, is to help students find their situation, and then they're naturally going to want to do the metacognition. It's going to be fun. You know, it's going to be energizing. They're going to be up at midnight uh, still working on this thing. Uh, so that's what I try to do at Growing Leaders is, is to really make that happen or help people make that happen on the, on the campus. Great. Great. No, that's, that's great information and an interesting way to think about things. So uh, I want to <clears throat> pivot um, a little bit towards higher education. Um, what do you 
What do you think is unique about leading change in higher education settings compared to other, you know, other industries that you've consulted in? Wow. Well, um, I know this is tender territory here because probably it can be hard anywhere. But um, one obvious thing comes to mind, and I think that most people listening would agree with this. In a business setting, I think change happens quicker because the bottom line is everything. You know, the profit margin, the, you know, the sell the widgets and so forth. I think in higher ed, it's, it's so, it can get so stuck in, in you know, academic committees or, you know, changes happen slower because there's so, many, so much more red tape. And again, I don't want to sound cruel. There may be somebody listening that's in charge of that red tape and they're going, do you not know why we need that? I do. Mm-hmm. I really do. But I think it's very hard sometimes because you have to make your way through and be very persevering. Uh, and when the change perhaps was needed this year, it may not get uh, done until two years from now when now it's, it's, it's maybe a, a moot issue. You know, it's, it's now antiquated. Uh, we needed to do this back in, in 2014, and now it's, it's years later. So um, I, I think sometimes to create incentive for that change, I think we need to uh, identify problems without offering solutions and either make our colleagues or the students we teach dig in and, and figure it out. Um, I think instead of traditional grading in the classroom, for instance, we may want to um, relay how many mistakes they made and let them find it. I think we're going to have to show people where the pain is and the pain becomes great enough that they're, they're um, now seeing maybe we do need to make a change and it's not just that guy's idea or that woman's idea. It's, it's my idea. Um, mm. Yeah. So. Mm. Okay. All right. So I wanted to talk uh, a little bit about um, about your process as a facilitator and as a speaker. Yeah. You've, you've touched on this a little bit, but most of our listeners engage in similar activities on a regular basis. Uh, but I think that the the scale at which you're operating is probably uh, the scale and the diversity of of situation is probably a little bit. Um, a little bit larger than, than what most of our listeners are engaging in. So what do you think is the most important thing you keep in mind when, per, when preparing to facilitate on the topic of leadership? Yeah, okay. Well, um, first let me share that I use a grid with which to think right before I get in front of students and try to facilitate something. Hmm. Uh, and that grid or that um, template is EPIC. It's the word EPIC, E-P-I-C. Um, the letters there, E-P-I-C, represent four words that help me think through how I'm going to deliver this learning experience. So the letter E in EPIC reminds me these students are experiential. Um, If you think about the world that kids grow up in today, at least in North America, everything's an experience. Uh, I mean, you can't go to a fast food restaurant as a kid without a Playland experience. You know, it's not Mm -hmm. just a cheeseburger. It's a Playland. Uh, You go to a children's museum. And it's an experience. You know, it's not just look at the painting. It's lick it, sniff it, touch it, taste it. We create experiences. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes they get to higher ed and they go, hey, this is boring, you know. So uh, my, my first question is how can I create an experience or an environment from which we have a discussion? But the experience comes first. Um, I know this sounds a little bit s- silly and elementary, but um, I often tell instructors that students are not looking for a sage on the stage with a lecture. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, however, they're looking for a guide on the side with an experience. So, again, the more we can create experiences. We work with the San Francisco Giants baseball team, and and they've gone to an epic practice where they're creating experiences before they even put them in the batting cage to do it. 
to get them thinking right. Um, so I think if we can, first of all, create an experience that we're off and running. The letter P in, in EPIC reminds me they're participatory. Now, this is a little different than experiential. If you think about the world that um, kids grow up in today, they've been able to participate in the outcomes of where so many things are going in their life. Even at five years old, some of these kids have been weighing in on where the family goes on vacation. You know, so <laughs> do you want bologna or grilled cheese? You want to go to Disney World? Or do you want to go to the beach? You, want, you know, mm-hmm. and so they're, they're getting to weigh in early on. They're conditioned to say, I get to have a say. Well, then they get under a, a faculty member or a staff member or even a boss at work, and they just they listen to our download. So I'm saying, how could we give a sense of ownership to the student by letting, letting them participate in the outcomes of where this thing is going? How is it different this year than it was last year when I wasn't in this, but I feel like it's a little bit personalized to me? That's huge to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the phrase I like to use to summarize this one, Miles, is students support what they help create. Mm. I totally believe that. Okay, so the letter I in EPIC is they're image rich. Um, uh, This is so simple. These students have grown up with images. You know, now we're sending bitmojis or emojis, you know, instead of words on our text. Instagram has overtaken Facebook as the number one social media tool among teens. And and so, again, I'm thinking how can we leverage an image or a metaphor that becomes the anchor for what we want to say. Now, certainly there's much more that needs to be said. If we're teaching history, there are dates and generals and battles that need to be described. But what mm-hmm. if we had an image that anchored that big idea? And we keep referring back to that. Let me give you a good example. I mentioned um, we teach with images um, here. So um, when we teach the idea of focus to students, you know, you can lecture on focus and they'll go, oh, yeah, I need that. But what if you showed a big picture of a flood? And the principle you're teaching is rivers and floods. Rivers and floods represents, uh, you know, two kinds of water. One, water going everywhere, that's a flood, and then water going in the, same, in the same direction because it has banks. And we just say that rivers and floods always reminds me of the power of focus and vision and clarity. Um, and most of the time we start our year as a river, but then by October we're a flood. You know, things have mm-hmm. happened, you know. Girlfriend broke up with me. Oh, my God, I got injured on the soccer field or I flunked a test or whatever. And now what was once flowing is now flooding. We're fuzzy, not focused. But see, that image becomes a really good talking point. And now you've got language. Now you refer, you know, you say, hey, river flood. And they go, oh, my gosh, that's mm-hmm. true. You know, so mm-hmm. um, anyway, we just feel like that's just a powerful way to start a conversation. And then the letter C uh, in EPIC uh, is the word connected. Um, and that goes without saying, probably. Students are connected. They're te- connected both socially as well as technologically. Uh, so what if we had a class of 30 students or 35 or whatever it is, but we stopped way before we were finished with this content, and we broke them up into small communities of three people, and we gave them that well-crafted question. Um, I often say it needs to be a question that can't be answered quickly or with a yes or no answer. And we really let them wrestle with it. Um, now, it, it does get messy. And, and hopefully you've given them a really great question that um, it's almost controversial. You know, you, but you, the filters start working in their brains. The dendrites are firing. And now we are really sifting through and owning what we're learning. So I, I could go on and on. But that's, I would just encourage people, as you think about facilitating student learning, Think about EPIC. Is it experiential? Is it participatory? 
Is there an image that anchors this thing? And then am I letting them connect well? And am I starting with questions that are easier to answer and moving into the tougher ones, like I just mentioned, that are really wrestling matches between the minds of, of, of students? So I'll stop there. Okay. Great. That is a, that's a, a super, super helpful lens and I think a process that a lot of us can use. So for our yeah. last of the six big leadership questions, uh, if you could challenge all of us to teach our students one thing about leadership, what would you choose? Oh, wow. Probably what I would say to that one may not be an answer that's very flashy for listeners, but um, I think I would first start um, teaching the the priority and the importance of uh, the art of self-leadership. So I think when we talk about leadership, most of the time what goes through the mind of a student is, oh, I'm a good speaker, I'm a good organizer, I'm a great strategist. But I feel like far too many run down this road of leadership development and don't learn to lead themselves first. And you, you and I both know you can get into trouble if you're not if you're trying to discipline someone else, but you're not disciplining yourself, you're trying to mm -hmm. pass the vision to someone else, and you don't really have the vision yourself. So um, I remember D. Hawk, the founder of Visa International, he was the first person I ever heard talk about this. He said, I believe the first step of leadership is the art of self-leadership, and I think 50% of our time as established leaders ought to be spent on the art of self-leadership. I tend to agree and I just imagine a world, Miles, where if freshman students coming and first-year students start learning how important it is to, to build initiative and discipline and focus and time management skills and the less, the stuff that we're all trying to do, that if they really got it, and then moving into their career, their marriages, their, their, um, their personal lives, how they're going to contribute to the community as citizens. But they've got that down at 22, and they don't learn it at 42 when they're going through midlife crises. Um, I, I know I'm overspeaking here, but I just long to see a world where they not only are great with their hard skills, they're great with their soft skills, and that's partly the art of self-leadership. Mm. So, yeah. Okay. Well, that's a, a great note to, to wrap up on, I think. So thanks, everyone, for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. And thanks to Dr. Tim Elmore for the time and for his great work developing leaders at various levels across the country. Tim has a book specifically for educators coming out in late summer, Marching Off the Map. Also, Growing Leaders works with colleges across the country, helping them develop leadership programs that engage today's students. You can connect with Tim via his, uh, his uber-popular Twitter account, which is at Tim Elmore, or on the website growingleaders.com. And you can get more information about our knowledge community on, the various social, on our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SALead, Twitter at NASPASLPKC, and on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Miles, which is M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, which is S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we would love to hear about your program, so please shoot an email to NASPA Leader Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, Tim. Thanks, Miles. Great to be with you.